From Public Radio International, I'm Madeline Brand, and this is America Abroad. She was the youngest Nobel Prize winner in history. Malala Yousafzai, who at age 14 was nearly assassinated by the Taliban for the crime of wanting to go to school to learn, just made history on the world stage. Many girls in Pakistan and other developing countries are still barred from getting an education. There are tragic situations such as when 14-year-old Malala was shot in the head by the Taliban for speaking out for girls' education, or in Nigeria, where hundreds of schoolgirls were kidnapped by a terrorist organization last spring. Or like this 14-year-old girl in India whose father wanted her to leave school and get married, but she refused, and so... What he did that night was that he beat her up really badly. He took a rod and he hit her. Through all this violence and suffering of children, there is hope. Globally, the, the world has made incredible progress at enrolling children in school. That is happening in Latin America, South Asia, and even parts of Africa. And in Africa, some see hope for girls to get a secure and disciplined education in Islamic religious schools, known as madrasas. I've benefited how to behave in the society, how to treat different people. But with the spread of these madrasas, some worry that they bring religious extremism and the imposition of Arab culture on African communities. We'll explore these and other issues in greater depth during this hour. But first, Malala Yousafzai was, appropriately, in her high school chemistry class when she heard the news. My teacher came to the class and uh, she called me and she said, I have something important to tell you. And I was totally surprised when she told me that congratulations you have won the Nobel Peace Prize. We all started screaming. Hanya Chima is a Harvard-educated playwright and teacher living in Islamabad. Both my grandmothers were there, my mother was there, my mother was the one who broke the news, and uh, <laughs> we were all very, very excited. It was a big moment for women and girls in Pakistan and all around the world. Malala's story made a big impression on fifth-grade girls here in the United States. Malala fought for education and she fought so hard that men got really mad at her and shot her in the head. We'll hear more from these American fifth graders later in the program. The symbolism of this award that Malala shared with Indian children's rights activist Kailash Satyarthi has been felt especially by women and girls in Malala's home country of Pakistan. It was there, in the Swat Valley, that she was shot three times by a member of the Taliban who had boarded her school bus. Here's playwright Hania Chima again. As a Pakistani woman, I am extremely proud to know that there are women like Malala who have the drive and uh, will to be educated and move forward despite whatever social evils they are born around. I think that there are kind of two Pakistans. Fauzia Saeed is a Pakistani women's rights activist and the Pakistan fellow at the Wilson Center in Washington. There is one Pakistan where there are militants and people who impose their will. And there is another Pakistan who has been resisting, who has been the victim, who has lost 50,000 people at the hands of militants. So I think for them, Malala has always been a hero. But she does worry. Right now, it is not safe for her to return. 
because the Taliban have clearly said if she comes back, we will shoot her again. I and mean, they have they have stated that. Musharraf Zaidi runs a campaign called Alif Alan. It's devoted to getting the government to do more to get kids into school in Pakistan. He's astonished that 25 million kids don't go to school there. Just that idea still is so offensive, and it, it blows my mind that there are kids out there that can't take this for granted. The Pakistani Senate passed a resolution recognizing Malala. And I'm just thinking, well, what the hell are those kids supposed to do with the resolution? Even so, Zaidi thinks the award is inspiring. Just the concept of a, of a Pakistani girl, you know, looking up to Malala and thinking, wow, that medal could be mine one day, I think is tremendously powerful. But Malala herself is characteristically philosophical about the prize. This award is not just a piece of metal that you would keep in your room, but this is really an encouragement for me to go forward and to believe in myself, to know that there are people who are supporting me in this campaign. And we are standing together. We all want to make sure that every child gets quality education. To another country in South Asia now, India. It's hardly the place that pops into mind when you think of progress in girls' education. But lately, if you look closely, the number of girls attending schools in India has gone up in recent decades, especially in primary schools. This is true even in rural areas. That's not to say it's easy for girls to go to school there or for them to stay in school as they get older, especially if they're poor. But things are changing slowly. And more girls are fighting for the right to an education. Reporter Ritu Chatterjee has one such story. It's break time at a girls' school in the northern Indian city of Lucknow. This school made a profound difference in the life of 21-year-old Kushbu Rawat. This is Prerna school, she says, where I used to study. She walks through the school corridors to the back. She points to a mango tree, which she and her friends used to climb. That's the tree that we had a lot of fun on, she says. Looking back, Rawat says that her time at Prerna school were the best years of her life. The rest of her childhood was filled with drudgery. First her mother died, then her stepmother died, leaving her to cook, clean and raise two siblings. I'd cry by myself out of anger, she says. Sometimes when I was cooking, I'd feel like burning myself so I didn't have to work anymore. So she dropped out of school in second grade. Five years later, when Prerna school was built, she convinced her grandmother to let her go back to school again. She was 10 years old then. When I'd leave home every day and come here, she says, I'd feel happy. The school allowed her to make up for all the years of schooling she'd missed. And she loved learning to read again. Prerna was built by Urvashi Sani. What led me to start Prerna was a really a faith that education is the answer to girls' problems. Girls like Rawat, who come from poor and uneducated families, have it the worst, she says. They're often restricted to laboring inside the house and are married off as teenagers. That's why Prerna also fights early marriage by empowering girls to question patriarchy. It is to help them emerge as women who are able to see themselves as equal, autonomous persons, worthy of respect, and to participate equally in an unequal society. The impact of that education is evident for Rawat, who excelled at Prerna. In 2010, at the age of 14, she got a scholarship to go to London to participate in a drama workshop. That did not sit well with Rawat's father and her new stepmother. They had other plans for her. It was time for her to leave school and get married. 
but Rawat resisted. She wanted an education. Besides, marriage at that age would break an agreement her father had signed with the school, saying he wouldn't marry her off until she finished high school. Urvashi Sani remembers. He and his wife, they both came. Sani says she pointed out to them that their daughter was an A student. I said, you know, she only wants to study. Why won't you let her? He says, no, you know, I'm just about done with this studying and you've sown the seeds of rebellion. Huh? And I don't want her to study anymore. When Sani raised the issue of the agreement, he ignored it and insisted that education had made his daughter disrespectful and defiant. Meanwhile, Sani says his daughter stood at the back of the room, repeating one thing. I want to study. I want to study. You know, I was so shocked. I said, boy, isn't she scared? I'm getting scared of this dad. I'll tell you exactly what he said. He said, I have kerosene oil sitting at home and I've told her she should just burn herself. I was so taken aback. I said, sir, you know, that is murder. He said, oh, come on. You pay 50,000 and nobody cares. 50,000 rupees or just $800 to hush up a girl's death. With that threat, Rawat's father took his daughter home. What he did that night was that he beat her up really badly. He took a rod and he hit her. He hit her till she passed out and soiled her own clothes. As soon as this news reached Sani, she called a child rights helpline and the police, who showed up at Rawat's house. The police told her father he could go to jail if he beat his daughter again. He listened, livid at his daughter and Sani. Once the police left, he threw his eldest daughter out of the house. After the Kushbu case, we discussed it amongst my students at Prerna. You know what they said, and I think it's a very telling statement. They shrugged their shoulders and she says, you know, and this happens all the time. Most of the time, such violence silences girls into submission. And Rawat would have caved too, or would have taken her own life, had it not been for the support she got from her teachers, especially Sahani, who she calls auntie. One thing auntie had taught me, she says, is that I'm not so weak that I should die. She had also taught her that girls are no less than boys or men. Kushbu Rawat thinks back of the time when her father beat her up. She says, if he can treat me like this being my own father, why can't I turn around and stand up to him? In the years since Rawat's father threw her out, she graduated high school with honours and is currently pursuing a college degree. And she's working full-time for a lunch supply company, managing their pantry. She juggles orders from several cooks. One woman wants spices, another lentils. They nag Rawat to hurry up. She supplies each ingredient as quickly as she can. Rawat seems well on her way to becoming an economically independent woman. But she isn't so sure about it. If I can't focus on my studies, she says, how will I do anything in life? Yet, to teachers at Prerna, hers is a success story. They say parents are starting to realize that educating their girls is valuable. And even in Rawat's family, things have changed. In fact, she has four half-siblings going to school at Prerna. My name is Soni Rawat. Kushbu's half-sister, 15-year-old Soni Rawat says... Four years ago, her father began to make noises about getting her married soon. But he hasn't acted upon it yet, she says. So I haven't paid heed to his threats. What if your father does start insisting you get married? I ask Sony. What will you do then? I'll do exactly what my sister did, she says. I won't get married. For America Abroad... This is Ritu Chatterjee, New Delhi.
The problem of avoiding marriage at a young age might be familiar to millions of girls around the world, but it's a foreign concept here in the United States. We wanted to see how aware the average American girl is about the practice of child marriage, so we checked in with some fifth graders, average age 9 and 10, at Driscoll School in Brookline, Massachusetts. We started by asking what they liked most about school. Learning wasn't exactly at the top of the list. I like to come to school because I can meet all my friends I don't get to see outside of school. I met most of my friends at school, and um, if I didn't go to school, um, my life would be pretty boring. These girls are aware that conditions here in America are better than those in poor countries. We're lucky because we have like different floors and different classrooms, but I think in some countries... Um, they have one floor and either like two classrooms or one classroom and not a really big school. Probably the schools there aren't as, like, have as much stuff, at, like, has as much materials as we do here. When told that many girls are often taken out of school and married off by parents to bring money into the family, these girls struggled with that idea. If my parents did that to me, um, I'd feel like they wouldn't love me, um, but if there was a reason, like you said, behind it, I would still not feel any better because I would want to be with them. Sometimes like people joke around saying, if you sold me, how much would I be worth? And parents just say, like, not, like I'm not ever going to sell, sell you, but people actually sell you. That's kind of like rude. And it's not really right. The parents should stand up for the daughter. You can't treat humans like objects. They're living creatures that can think for themselves. If I was just being a slave because my parents didn't want me or anything, I'd feel like my life isn't worth living. After our discussion, they thought differently about the importance of school. I would way rather go to school than get married and raise money for the family. Even if people were not nice at school, I would still want to go there just to learn. Everyone has a right to get an education, no matter where they live or what they look like or what gender they are. Driscoll Elementary School fifth graders, Annika Mayer, Nora Woolfork, Laura Lowe, Nina Reese, Twyla Daly, Sola Ash, Risa Cove, and Gilda Gilbert. Coming up in Afghanistan, it is so hard for girls to go to school that mothers are known to disguise their girls as boys so they can learn. You can describe this almost as a shared deceit in Afghan society. It's kind of a don't ask, don't tell. Let us know your thoughts about this program. Tweet us at America underscore abroad. I'm Madeline Brand, and you're listening to Global Girls Education, Breaking Down Barriers on America Abroad. We turn now to Afghanistan. UNICEF has described it as the most dangerous place in the world to be born a girl. Most girls are illiterate and forced into marriage, often before their 16th birthday. Boys, on the other hand, have a lot more freedom. Some parents are disguising their girls and raising them as boys. It's a practice known as bachaposh. There are lots of reasons why parents do this, and here to tell us more is journalist Jenny Nordberg. She wrote about Bachaposh in her new book, The Underground Girls of Kabul in Search of a Hidden Resistance in Afghanistan. Nordberg first learned about the practice several years ago when she met a woman who was a member of the Afghan parliament. That woman invited Nordberg into her house. 
And when I was there, I happened to be talking to her 10-year-old daughters while she was in another room, the mother. And one of the girls just said to me, they spoke a little bit of English, they said, you know, our brother is really a girl. And I looked at her and I was like, uh-huh, okay. And then the other one said, no, really, it's our sister. And to me, he looked entirely like a boy, whereas the twin girls were very girly, very giggly in all mannerisms, very, very feminine. Uh, this was a six-year-old with a whole different attitude, hips forward, dressed in a shirt and a pair of pants with short, spiky hair, shooting a toy gun at me. So to me, it looked entirely like a young boy. This is Azita you're talking about, the female parliamentarian, the mother. Yes. And she herself was raised bachaposh. She was, yes. And that took more than a year for me to find out. And so it was a short-lived time of freedom for her and something that she felt was empowering to her. It made her able to speak to men, uh, not to be afraid, and to know that she was able to do certain things that other girls are mostly uh, unaware of there. Is that what led her to think that she could be a member of parliament? In her words, in her mind, uh, that contributed to a sense of confidence. I mean, Afghanistan is an extremely gender-segregated society. You say she has three girls and this girl who's being raised as a boy. Why did she only raise the last one as a boy? Why not all of them? She described it to me in a very matter-of-fact way. She said, when I became a parliamentarian, people would question me. They would say, you know, what's wrong with you when you can't bear a son for your husband? I mean, one should know that it, it is incumbent upon every woman in Afghanistan to have a son because it's a patriarchal society. So without one, you're not only seen as weak, but you are, in fact, weak uh, as a family. So people were questioning her abilities as a parliamentarian, as a politician. And so nobody knows outside the home that this is, in fact, a little girl? You can describe this almost as a shared deceit in Afghan society. It's kind of a don't ask, don't tell. It's better to have a made-up son than to have no son at all, and everyone's aware of that. And as long as it's a child, it's fine, mostly, by most accounts. So then what happens when they hit puberty? Well, that's when it becomes interesting and very complicated many times. If the child is reverted to the birth sex, so to speak, before puberty... That's when these adult women have described to me that this experience has been somewhat empowering to them. If you push it closer to puberty and if you go through puberty as a young man, essentially, then the adult women that I've interviewed have described it as something much more difficult, as though the male, in essence, have stayed with them. And some girls try and resist and, and simply refuse going back to being a girl. I, one girl who I followed for several years is named Zara. And she told me when I met her, I think even the first time, she said, I see how women are treated here. Why would I want to be one of them? In the next few years, Azita's young girl slash boy is going to hit puberty. From my rough calculations, she's around 10 or 11 right now. Yes. What's going to happen to her? Well, I just spoke to Azita last week. She was ducking because there was shooting outside her window in central Kabul, which was a little uh, disconcerting when we spoke. The idea is for her to revert back to becoming a young woman, and hopefully that will go well. I think it is a, a good thing that her mother have had the same experience, and many times what happens to children, bacha push or not, in Afghanistan is depending on how progressive and, and, and how brave their parents are. 
whether they they are able to delay marriage, for instance, and allow girls to continue in education and see more of the world that way. Jenny Nordberg is an award-winning journalist. Her new book is called The Underground Girls of Kabul in Search of a Hidden Resistance in Afghanistan. Jenny Nordberg, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. The war in Afghanistan was devastating to girls' education there. The same is true in Syria. As the civil war rages on, it's getting harder for girls to go to school. My name is Xanthi Ackerman. I'm the founder of Advancing Girls' Education in Africa and also a senior fellow with the Syria Research and Evaluation Organization. In full disclosure, we should mention that her father-in-law, Peter, is a member of our board. Xanthi Ackerman has been in Turkey for more than six months and visiting border areas with Syria to assess the conditions for the people there. I asked her what sort of effect the crisis is having on young girls and their education. Well, the conflict is having an effect on girls and boys inside of Syria. There are so many, both boys and girls, who are out of school and who actually aren't able to move even in a basic way to get to schools. So we know that there's almost 6 million children who are affected by the conflict, and it's both boys and girls that are suffering inside. We'll hear more from Xanthi Ackerman in a moment, but outside Syria, millions of people are suffering in refugee camps. Turkey, for example, has opened its doors to about a million and a half Syrian refugees since the spring of 2011. As the war drags on, Turkey is finding itself with a long-term humanitarian and education problem. Although Syria and Turkey have a solid tradition of secular, universal education for both boys and girls, these traditions are being undermined by the challenges of keeping the refugees housed and fed. Jacob Resnick is there, and he has this report. We're at a community center in the city of Orfa in southern Turkey. It opened its doors in May thanks to international donors. It's not a formal school, but it does offer classes in Turkish, English, music, and dance. Unlike many Arabic language schools in the area, it's free, so it attracts Syrians living in the neighborhood. Zebra is a 14-year-old from the city of Raqqa. Her city's been in the news this year as the headquarters of Islamic State, or ISIS. Her mother and father and 11 children, Zebra's the youngest, fled a year and a half ago when fighting got intense. But here in Orfa, the bright-eyed teenager says she has little to do with her time. She says when she was in Syria, she attended school, but since arriving in Turkey, she hasn't been able to. She wants to, she says, but she can't get enrolled. Her family has limited means. Her father was a construction worker, and her mother has her hands full with a large family. Zara has always wanted to be a doctor, she says, to save lives. But when she told her family, she says they just smiled and said, Inshallah, or God willing. She says she asked her father to enroll her in school, but they don't have the means to pay the tuition. And she adds with a trace of bitterness, they don't take her seriously. She says when her father visited schools, they all asked for more money than the family could pay. She adds that her education doesn't seem all that important to her parents. Amina is a 17-year-old from Kobani, a predominantly Kurdish city about 40 miles south of here. She and her family have been here for about two months. She says they left when fighting broke out around Kobani. ISIS fighters started committing crimes against the Kurdish population, she says. Her parents, she says, are looking to enroll her in an Arabic language school, but she's focused on returning to her home. She says she misses her friends, her teachers, and just about everything about her old school in Kobani. Carol Batchelor, 
the UNHCR's chief in Turkey says it's the majority of children, those outside the camps, who are missing out on getting an education. Of the neighboring host countries, the children outside of school are uh, highest in Turkey, not in Lebanon, where more than 25% are Syrian, not in Jordan. This is an extremely challenging statistic. Turkey has been generous to Syrians, who it terms as guests, but not legal refugees. This has made it difficult for Turkey to receive international funding to house its refugees, so the government has largely had to shoulder the burden alone. In fact, a report by the International Crisis Group this spring says that since 2011, Turkey has spent more than $3 billion to house and feed its Syrian guests. Outside the border city of Akçakali lies the Suleyman Shah camp, with an unofficial population of 30,000 people. It's the largest in Turkey, though receives little international media attention. Despite the cramped conditions, young refugees are at least guaranteed food, shelter, medical care, and education. This camp is more primitive than some, and inside, the Turkish Relief Agency provides the estimated 8,000 school-age children free primary and secondary schooling. There are about 75 teachers here, and that's more than 100 pupils per teacher. One of those teachers is Mohammed. We meet at a cafe in the Chakali, so we can speak more freely. Mohammed's a soft-spoken 24-year-old refugee who teaches English to camp children. He had just received his list of students for the semester and says he's nervous. I was shocked when I get in my class today. I found about 60 students in the class. Despite the large class sizes, he hopes they will be encouraged to apply to Turkish universities. The camp's general manager, Hussein Ortaç, says already the first batch have been accepted, and he hopes to more than double the number next year. Ortaç says 40 students who graduated the camp's high school applied for Turkish universities after taking a Turkish language test. Of those, 12 were accepted in places and can be enrolled in Turkish public universities. At the cafe, I put the question to Mohammed. Are a dozen Syrian high school students, most of them girls, really enrolling in Turkish university? He said he wasn't sure, but as far as the teachers have been told, he didn't think so. He says most families decline the offer because of money problems and the fear of sending students away, especially girls. It's nearly impossible to send girls in to universities for parents. They always refuse to send their girls, especially if the university is in another city. This is uh, the most serious challenge. Education is possible within a camp environment, but he says that many families aren't willing to send their daughters into the great unknown after high school. There is no problem in teaching girls in the primary school or till the 12th grade, but it's nearly impossible to send girls in to universities. And as for the hundreds of thousands of teenagers living outside the camps, either in apartments or on the street, it is in some ways more difficult for them Naya, for example, in the city of Orfa, is a 21-year-old from the town of Kamishli. Her father was a Syrian military officer who defected in 2011, forcing the family of eight to flee overnight. She says she arrived in Orfa with no high school transcript to prove she was qualified to take exams for a diploma, so she'd need to restart high school from the very beginning before she can even consider university. It's not that Naya doesn't have ambition. She wants to study business administration, but has no way to apply for college without a high school transcript. She says she's always wanted to work in a bank. She loves numbers, and she likes the way they switch on her brain. Her situation is not unique.
religious conservatism can also present obstacles to girls seeking higher education. Naya's friend, 21-year-old Yara, comes from Raqqa. She says she doesn't wear the Islamic headscarf, but at the first school, some of the teachers insisted she wear one. But even after she relented, she says she didn't feel comfortable and left. She's angry at people trying to impose their values on her. She says the real Islam is not forced on people, but people running some of the schools had strong political views, which she says is alien to her. She's been out of school for nearly four years, so she is like one of literally millions of Syrian refugees wishing the war would end so she can get on with her life. For America Abroad, I'm Jacob Resnick in Orfa, Turkey. Xanthi Ackerman is the founder of Advancing Girls Education in Africa, and she's also a senior fellow with the Syria Research and Evaluation Organization. She's been visiting areas bordering Syria in the past months to look at the conditions for children there. I asked her, what can Western aid organizations do to help these refugee camps? Well, providing education and providing enough of it is the main thing. And getting the basic funding to do that has been a major issue. So the international community has gotten together and made appeals, and those appeals have not been met. Can you just take us back to before this war happened and what the education system was like then for girls in Syria? Before the war, girls had access to education inside of Syria. Girls, certainly at the primary school level, were attending in equal rates to boys. And at the secondary school level, at least at lower secondary school level, that was also true. Almost three-quarters of boys and girls were going to and completing lower secondary school. So in that sense, education was going quite well for girls and in terms of gender parity. So the war has had quite an effect on girls and also on boys and has really brought into relief the gender differences. And what about in terms of marriage and girls being married off? At a young age. Yeah, there was child marriage in Syria before the war. The child marriage rate was 13%. But what's happening now as a result of the war is that families are so much more insecure. And so they're forced into decisions that they wouldn't have necessarily made before. And there was a study in in Zathari camp in Jordan showing that now one in four marriages of girls are under 18. And it's especially worrying because some of those families are making that decision because they are worried that the girl could be sexually abused and so they need to they feel the need to protect the girl by marrying her so that that doesn't happen children's hope is alive at school heather simpson is the senior director for education and child development at save the children Many of the countries in the the region around Syria are really doing a wonderful effort to try to address the needs of these Syrian kids. But as you can imagine, it's incredibly difficult. So in Lebanon, as an example, there are now more Syrian children in Lebanese schools than Lebanese children. And the Lebanese system wasn't prepared for that. And Lebanese schools are taught in a different language than what Syrian students were learning in. So we can't wait for education. We know that when children who are caught up in a conflict drop out of school, a very big portion of those children will never go back to school. So we're at risk of losing a whole generation. Talk a little bit more about the situation in Lebanon with the Syrian refugees. What does it look like in a classroom? 
as you can imagine, the, the Lebanese schools have doubled in some communities in size, and so they've gone to double shifting. And this is similar in Jordan as well, which means that some children go to school in the morning, and then there's a slight break as those children go back home, and then other children go to school in the afternoon. I can give an example in Jordan. One of my colleagues was talking about a particular girls' school. So in the older grades, girls go to school in separate spaces than boys. And in the girls' school, the Jordanian girls were feeling very frustrated that their space was getting taken over by Syrian girls who they don't know. They're not spending a lot of time within school because they're simply kind of passing each other, but their classrooms are being used and their time with their own classmates and their own teachers is being shortened. And the Jordanian students in this particular girls' school were leaving bullying messages on the school walls and on the chalkboard so that when the Syrian girls got to school, they would see these mean things written on the classroom walls. Now, this is just indicative of the stress on both sides of this conflict that's happening. So our team, our Save the Children colleagues, are trying to work with both Jordanian students as well as Syrian students to decrease the stress levels, to decrease the bullying, the physical bullying that the boys are, are dealing with and the emotional bullying that the girls are dealing with to make sure that all children have the opportunity to continue to learn. Let's turn to northern Iraq, where about half a million children are not going to school. What can an organization like yours do to tackle such an immense problem? It's an incredibly complicated issue in northern Iraq. We have some education programming that was working in northern Iraq to try to make sure that adolescents had the opportunity to continue learning, the opportunity to gain life skills and economic opportunities. With the conflict, we've had to stop working in certain communities simply because it was putting the children at risk as well as our own colleagues at risk. So we have moved some of our activities into the southern part of the country so that we're continuing to develop models that can eventually support children in all parts of Iraq. But you'd bring up a very important point that children and their learning opportunities, they don't go away even when society is crumbling around them. So Save the Children is trying to work on developing models of literacy programming, of math programming, that we can continue supporting children so that those children can continue learning, um, even as governments are not stable. There are lots of challenges around the world in conflict zones and elsewhere. Which areas have you seen that have shown the most promise and why? Globally, the world has made incredible progress at enrolling children in school. You see incredibly high enrollment rates in places like Latin America. And when you look at the gains, even places like Africa and Asia have some incredibly impressive improved enrollment rates. What we have seen lag behind, especially in Africa, has been the learning levels of children in school. I was in Malawi, and some of their first and second grade classrooms have 300 children for one teacher because the community 
understands that school is important and they are sending their kids to school. But a classroom of 200, 300 children for one teacher is kind of a recipe for disaster when you think mm -hmm. about learning. You know, and I go back to Syria again, where it's just heartbreaking to see a country that did have a very highly functional education system really crumble in the matter of a few years. The donors need to do more to support the, the countries around the region to support the Syrian children's needs. Um, and we as international organizations need to do more to make sure that those Syrian children's needs are addressed and met. Heather Simpson is the Senior Director for Education and Child Development at Save the Children. You're listening to Global Girls Education, Breaking Down Barriers on America Abroad. Coming up, we hear about a Kenyan woman who escaped becoming a child bride and has now devoted her life to saving other young girls from the same fate. In future, we are hoping that to build our own rescue center where they could learn other skills apart from the basic classroom education. To hear extended interviews and to see some stark photos from a Syrian refugee camp in Turkey, visit our website, americaabroad.org. I'm Madeline Brand, and you're listening to Global Girls Education, Breaking Down Barriers on America Abroad. It's not possible to talk about girls' education without remembering the terrible incident in which more than 200 Nigerian schoolgirls were kidnapped by the terrorist organization Boko Haram this past April. Arukaino Umukoro is the senior correspondent with Punch Newspaper, Nigeria's most widely read paper. It's been crushing, heart-rendering. Um, months after, we're still doing stories about that. And whenever I talk to these parents, they talk about their pain, they talk about their anguish, they just hope they can see their children again. While the forced abduction of hundreds of girls is rare in Africa, the tradition of forcing teenage and even prepubescent girls into marriage is not. Josephine Kalua grew up in the rural community of Samburu in northern Kenya. She remembers that when she was a child, her mother protected her from becoming a child bride. Every year I come home for the school breaks, there's a man waiting to marry me off. But my mom kept refusing and she fought for me and my sisters to be in school. So I was lucky to continue with my education until I was able to finish. At a young age, Josephine saw that there were virtually no girls in the classes in her village. She realized they were being married off. But because of the protection of her mother, Josephine eventually went to college to study nursing. When she got her degree, she chose to come back to her village and work as a nurse. I started rescuing girls, my own cousins who were not going to school. I started telling my community the importance of taking girls to school. So the first girls actually I rescued were my own cousins. And one of the cousins that I rescued, I, I rescued uh, when I was still uh, in school myself, in the elementary school. So I uh, convinced my relatives to take my cousin to school. And she's now a medical student. She's graduating this Christmas with her bachelor's in medical school. She'll be a doctor. Josephine kept on rescuing girls with her own money, but she was frustrated that she couldn't save more. So two years ago, she decided to leave nursing and start a group called Samburu Girls Foundation. And now we have 169 girls under the program two years down the line, and they're all in school. 
The girls we rescue are aged between 8 to 15 years, most of them. So most of all our girls are still in basic education schools. But in future, we are hoping to build our own rescue center where they could learn other skills apart from the basic classroom education. But in spite of her success, there are still devastating setbacks. Recently, she convinced the police of one village to help her rescue a 10-year-old girl. But then she got a call and was told there was a wedding in the village anyway. And I said, why? And I have the girl. And they told me, oh, they replaced her with a younger sister who was seven years. So the seven-year sister was married. In traditional marriages, the girl is circumcised on the day of her wedding. This seven-year-old was not spared. So now it was a bigger task because for me, I have to go back to the village and rescue again this other younger girl. Finally, when we got her, it was really a sad experience for her, but at least we got her out of the situation. And uh, it's been five years now since I rescued them, the two sisters. They're all in school now, and they're doing very well. That's Josephine Kalua from the Samburu Girls Foundation in Kenya. Here and in other parts of sub-Saharan Africa, one place that girls are finding an education is at Islamic religious schools known as madrasas. Typically, these schools teach only boys, but in sub-Saharan Africa, more madrasas are being opened for girls and are usually funded by wealthy Arab donors. It's a way to compensate for what some say is the extremely poor quality of state-funded schools. But still, others share the ongoing worry that these madrasas for girls can be a source of terrorism. Halima Athmani reports. Here in Kampala, this madrasa for girls was founded by Prince Badru Kakungulu in 1954. At the time, the prince felt that the Muslim girl needed a good education founded on Muslim beliefs and saw that she could resist attempts to convert her to Christianity. That mission of an Islamic education continues today. I walked to meet the head of Quran lessons known as Shekhat. Outside the staff room, I meet female students who are moving around the school compound. The secondary school girls are dressed in uniforms ranging from purple to lime green. The girls at the higher level are dressed in white, short-sleeved blouses and light blue skirts of knee length. Even though it is a Muslim school, the girls do not cover their heads and maintain two inches length of hair. Full body covering is only worn by the girls while performing the five obligatory prayers of the day. Shekhar Jauhara Nachibonika is the head of the Quran lessons. She is convinced Quran lessons nurture the girls spiritually. They give them discipline and also make them yearn to do more for the sake of Allah. I ask her. You become a very respectable woman. But I'm also wondering, how has it benefited you apart from the spiritual way? First of all, I'm exceptional. I'm the only lady like this big institution who can speak Arabic and I'm the only teacher who teaches Arabic. There are these people who think people who go through madrasas are just being indoctrinated to be extremists. They're ignorant because in madrasas, Quran teaches us good morals. Students learn their good morals either early in the morning or after 7 p.m. after the secular curriculum ends. They are taught how to read the Quran. They are taught to write recite, memorize, and to do tafsir or translation. Students also learn the sayings and practices of the Holy Prophet and the oneness of Allah. On a Friday at exactly 1 p.m., the call for prayer is made at Nabisunsa Girls High. Allah.
Now, the girls dress in long black prayer hibayas. The school sheikh in his sermon advocated respecting the rights of women. You treat your women well and be kind to them. But he does caution that it won't work unless respect is mutual. 17-year-old Aisha Mutonyi, a student of Smaya Girls School in Wakiso District, Uganda, speaks to me about the good she has gotten from these Quran lessons. I've benefited how to behave in the society, how to treat different people, even if a person is a Muslim or he's not or she's not. And in the Quran, they always teach us that we girls, we have to respect ourselves and dress nicely in our hijabs. In Uganda, the number of these madrasas isn't huge and there's really no fear here of religious extremism. Perhaps, says one official, because Uganda is multi-ethnic and multi-religious and this discourages this kind of extremism. Another reason is that perhaps the madrasas here had a disorganized beginning. Analyst Sheikh Hamid Biamgenzi of the Islamic University in Uganda says they were established by Arab traders from countries such as Yemen, Oman, South Sudan and Egypt. As a result, these madrasas lack a uniform accredited national curriculum. In addition to that, the facilities there are bad. No good toilets. The available toilets are very dirty. <laughs> Can you imagine? The teachers themselves sometimes share toilets with children. Though it was pretty easy to go to a madrasa for girls and talk to the students and teachers in Uganda, this was not the case when I traveled to Kenya. I tried to visit the Nairobi Muslim Academy in South Sea and Mahadi Girls Training Institute in Pangani. The manager of the school angrily denied my entrance. He claimed that his school had suffered security raids by the military back in June. He also said he himself was stopped by Kenyan military five times along different roadblocks on suspicions that he could be a terrorist. That one I'm not aware that the government is targeting any madrasa. And for your information, the government respects madrasas. Mohamed Mujuma Munyipembe is the director of Quality Assurance and Standards in Kenya's Ministry of Education. He oversees the all-round performance and curriculum of all of Kenya's schools. He said he knew nothing about these raids. But of course, if you are doing things which are unusual, you'll be followed. My children are going to madrasa. I've never heard of that. The vice chairman of the Supreme Council of Kenya Muslims is Sheikh Kamana Abdallah. He runs the umbrella body of all mosques and madrasas in Kenya. I asked him about the fear that surrounds madrasa education. When you talk about Islamic education, yeah. for some people they think, oh, my child is going to be taught extremism. I quite agree with you, Halima. Yeah. That was the issue. And it wasn't there before. It only came up after the bombing of the Twin Tower when Bush started this issue about terrorism and fighting them. In Kenya's local media recently, Sheikh Abdel Latif Abdul Karim was quoted as saying that failure by the government to have a unified Islamic madrasa studies curriculum has left opportunities open for extremist clerics to exploit and radicalize youths. Sheikh Abdul Karim is executive board member with Al Muntanda Al Islami Trust in Nairobi. So he was pleased when this past February, Kenya's Ministry of Education piloted new curriculum in 50 schools in three major cities. He said it would help as one way to streamline Islamic studies and to deal with Islamic extremism. 
for America Abroad, I am Halima Athmani in Kampala, Uganda. Falu Ngom is from Senegal in West Africa and also a professor of linguistic anthropology at Boston University. He says he can understand the fear in Kenya, but not only because of the political extremism that some of these madrasas bring, but also because of their approach to teaching Islam. What Americans may not realize, he says, is that Quranic schools are the oldest forms of educational institutions in Africa, but their structure and curriculum are different from the modern madrasas. For example, uh, one of the key differences is that in the traditional African Quranic schools, you start by memorizing the Quran because it is believed that the Quran, being the word of God, has to be ingested so that the person becomes a moral example in society. In contrast, in, in their system, rather than emphasizing first, for example, memorization, they emphasize first Arabic literacy. So they often conflate Islam and Arab identity. Making Arabic literacy a primary educational goal in African madrasas troubles Professor Ngom. Traditionally, he says, Africans have studied Islam in a variety of languages. He pulls out a poem written in Ajami that shows multilingualism as a divine grace. God created Mandinka, Fula, Arabic, and Wolof speakers and understand them. So God is multilingual, <laughs> multilingual. So for these people, you can be a very good African and be a very good Muslim. These are not mutually exclusive. But many madrasas, especially extremist ones, he says, are trying to change that idea. They come with nice buildings, nice infrastructure, but a new curriculum. For example, girls who are trained in such school will marry people from those schools. And you can see drastic changes even in their clothing. This drastic change is a sign of new thinking, in many cases, a channel for Wahhabi and Salafi thinking. And often, he says, that thinking sends the message that a person who identifies culturally as an African is not a good Muslim. It's because of such beliefs that, for example, Ansar al-Din and Boko Haram thinks that they're not good Muslims. You know, and, and, and I think that's, the, that's really the challenge for the 21st century. That and making sure that girls around the world are supported in their desire to receive the same education as boys. You've been listening to Global Girls Education, Breaking Down Barriers on America Abroad. This hour was written and edited by Martha Little and produced by Rob Sachs with additional production help from Flan Williams. And special thanks to America Abroad's summer fellow, Lulu Hangala. Audio engineering support was provided by Mario Saavedra at KCRW. You can hear past programs by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes, finding us on the TuneIn or Public Radio International apps, or by visiting our website, americaabroad.org, where you can also find extended interviews and exclusive content pertaining to this and other programs. I'm Madeline Brand, and this is America Abroad from Public Radio International. Support for this show was provided by Public Radio International stations and listeners like you. Support was also provided by the Aga Khan Foundation and the Luce Foundation. PRI Public Radio International.